0: Hello, this is Jeff Farrell of RTT, and this is the fourth in our series of podcasts in which we talk about topical technology issues in the 5G and satellite industry. You can also read or download a written version of these talks from our website, rttonline.com. In this month's technology topic, Sub-G 5G, we're going to be talking about implementing 5G in existing LTE spectrum, or rather as the title implies, into existing bands at 900 megahertz and below. In February this year, ITUR M2083 formalized three high-level use cases for 5G, enhanced mobile broadband, EMBB, massive machine-type communications, that's MMTC, and ultra-reliable low-latency communications, (URLLC). These high level use cases are intended to inform the Release 15 and Release 16 standards process. The so called new radio work items within 3GPP are focusing initially on EMBB and URLLC and to consider frequency ranges up to 52.6 GHz, with over the air RF requirements defined for below 6 GHz and above 24 GHz. Release 15 is scheduled for completion by mid. 2018 in the RAN 80 process. Release 16 is scheduled for completion by December 2019, by which time the outcome of WRC 2019 will be known. Release 16 has additional work items on adaptive beamforming intended for use in KU band, KA band and E band. Release 15 includes work on additional bandwidth above existing LTE allocations, including bands up to 4.99 GHz but also into working with 5GHz Wi-Fi, including 802.11p. It also includes study work on refarming LTE spectrum for 5G, which in theory could be anywhere between band 31 at 450 MHz, well, initially in Brazil, to band 43 at 3.8 GHz. Some countries have suggested their own 5G preferences. The UK, for example, has suggested 26GHz, gigahertz, 3.6GHz gigahertz, and 700MHz, as three Pioneer bands for 5G. Europe presently seems to be favouring 26 GHz, the US favours 28 GHz, 38 and 39 GHz and E-band. The headline assumption for 5G EMBB is 100 MHz of bandwidth at all times, which would seem to suggest an emphasis towards higher frequency, short wavelength bands. Other countries such as India, the Telecommunications Standards Development Society in India, have been lobbying for larger area cell sizes to be supported for low-cost rural and urban coverage. And this is now reflected on a stated requirement for low-mobility large cells and rural coverage supporting high-speed vehicles. While this would be feasible at C-band and shorter wavelengths, there may be economic reasons for looking at the relative economics and technical feasibility of implementing 5G in sub 1 gigahertz spectrum for these large cell deployments. And that's the subject of this month's technology topic. The vendor community, particularly the US vendor community, presents a vision of 5G based on high data rates delivered in the centimeter and millimeter band with a present implementation focus on 28 gigahertz, 38, 39 gigahertz and d-band. That's the 71 to 76 and 81 to 86 gigahertz duplex. Either side of the automotive radar bands. The underlying technical logic is that smart antennas deployed at these wavelengths can potentially deliver over 40 dBi of isotropic gain, offsetting the additional free space propagation loss, non-line of sight loss and surface scatter absorption. The underlying commercial logic is that 28 gigahertz and 38 gigahertz and E-band hardware already exists for point to point and point to multipoint backhaul. So in practice, this is a scanning of existing RF technology platforms. It also allows 5G to scale to ultra dense network topologies to compete with Wi-Fi. As a rule of thumb in a present day network, 400 Wi-Fi sites provide equivalent coverage to about 20 LTE cellular sites. Implementing 5G in the centimetre and millimetre bands would support Wi Fi density, but with a significantly higher link budget. The improved link budget would be delivered by using fractional beam width antennas to realise higher EIRP and improved receive sensitivity. FDD, if adopted, would deliver an additional sensitivity gain over TDD Wi Fi. However, there is a counter argument that cautions against the notion of using licensed KU and KA band and E band spectrum as a basis for competing with unlicensed spectrum delivered from access points where the costs are covered by other third parties. Cafes and clubs provide the basis for a no cost Wi-Fi business model against which it is foolish to compete. The economic counter argument is further strengthened by another rule of thumb which is that at 28 gigahertz an additional 30 dB of downlink transmit power is needed to achieve the same user device receive power as a 900 MHz cellular network. That's a lot of extra power. On the uplink, a similar level of selectivity gain will be required. While this is technically possible and indeed attractive on the basis that it introduces additional complexity, which translates into additional vendor value, it may not be the best option for mobile broadband operator bitDA and intuitively not a good idea for lower ARPU markets. A simpler 5G solution that scaled to longer wavelengths would seem to be possibly more appropriate, but could that include sub one gigahertz spectrum? Well, the IMT 2020 definition of 5G enhanced mobile broadband specifies that a minimum of 100 megahertz of bandwidth should be available at all times. That's the assumed practical limit of LTE advanced using aggregated carriers becomes the lower limit of 5G. Now, this would seem to be impractical as a sub-1 GHz deployment until you take a closer look at the sub-1 GHz band plan. Theoretically, if the 450 MHz band in Brazil, that's band 31, that's a 5x5 MHz duplex, is added to band 71 in the US, that's the new 600 MHz Allocation following the incentive auction, that's another 35 plus 35 megahertz. Together with band 28 in Asia, that's another 45 by 45 megahertz. Or in the US, bands 12, 17, 13 and 14, that's the new first responder band. Well, not so new, that's the first responder band. Then you've got the E850 band, that's band 26 in the US parts of Asia that's 35 by 35 megahertz and then band 8 at 900 megahertz that's 900 megahertz band as we know it in Europe and Asia that's another 35 by 35 megahertz all in all that's 155 plus 155 megahertz of spectrum. Now practically this does not scale geographically due to the differences in allocation between the three ITU regions but it would be not impossible to find over 100 megahertz of common FDD spectrum that could be potentially refarmed for 5G. Now this poses many implementation questions, not least of which is the impact of introducing Andrew the five, 5G five candidate waveforms into spectrum supporting LTE cyclic prefix OFDM, 3G and narrowband GSM. There's a very good video that adjuncts have done on this topic if you go onto the adjunct website. But also, there's a present lack of ambition as to how far 5G cell sizes could or should scale. The IMT 2020 recommendations for 700 MHz suggest a cell intersite distance of 5km. But this seems paltry when compared with standard GSM, 35km radius cells, and particularly insignificant when compared to proprietary larger cell size implementations of GSM. For example, in Australia, where 100km radius cells are deployed in a high-power, high-tower topology. These larger cells come with round-trip timing implications. The TDMA time slots in GSM are time-advanced to compensate for the flight time difference of close-in and cell-edge users. And in 100km cells, every other time slot is left blank to provide sufficient additional time-domain guard band to avoid user-to-user inter interference. Capacity is traded against coverage. Similar issues arise with the cyclic prefix in LTE, with larger cells incurring significant time-domain guard band overheads. Not all of the 5G candidate waveforms use a cyclic prefix but none of them have been expressly designed to be efficient or effective in larger radius cells, suggesting that this is an area of 5G standards making that deserves additional priority. It would also be harder to implement smart antennas at these wavelengths, though not impossible. Challenges deliver performance gain with a 0.3 metre width envelope panel antenna that's one column of elements to meet weight and wind loading constraints. ArrayCom and Quintel solutions provide two examples of antennas available today for sub-1GHz deployment. Might not be as smart as 5G massive MIMO centimetre band and millimetre band adaptive phase arrays, but still deliver useful performance gain in noise-limited and interference-limited networks, irrespective of whether 4G or 5G technologies are deployed. Quintel additionally positioned their product as a way of managing 4G and legacy technology coexistence in the same band, and 4G-5G coexistence would be a relatively simple extension of this same technique. Care has to be taken when wider bandwidth waveforms and narrowband waveforms coexist in adjacent channels within the same passband, with the wider bandwidth channels generally projecting higher OOB emissions into their narrowband neighbours, but this is a well understood and manageable problem. In terms of device front end design, the additional hurdle of high bandwidth ratios has to be overcome. Designing an antenna and ground plane to work efficiently from 450 MHz to 900 MHz is a non-trivial task, particularly when space is at a premium, and it's a shame to throw all or some of the longer wavelength propagation gain away due to a lack of aperture or compromised noise and power matching or having capacitance effects. Similarly, it would be prematurely ambitious to consider a multiplexing architecture that could couple these five bands together through a single transmit and receive chain. In practice, at the moment there would be five passbands each defined by an acoustic duplex filter. Incidentally, we are reliably informed that temperature-compensated saw devices based on lithium niobate, or equivalent F-bar devices, are now capable of supporting bandwidths of up to 6%. So high bandwidth ratios, for example the 45 by 45 MHz duplex for APT band 28, can now be handled by a single duplex filter. Our thanks to Avago for pointing this out to us. There is also a potentially useful quarter wave, half wave relationship between the 450 and 900 megahertz bands, similar to the 900, 1800 megahertz band, which may allow front end efficiencies to be realized. So in summary, It has always been our position that high data rates are a worthy ambition, but the real challenge for 5G is to deliver data more cost efficiently and power efficiently than all and any of the technologies that 5G aims to replace. It also needs to deliver improved a bit down higher enterprise value for operators servicing developed economy markets really fully saturated with 4G networks and deliver low cost IoT connectivity. It has also been our position that for 5G to be economically viable, it has to be able to scale to lower ARPU markets and to be capable of servicing vertical markets where geographic coverage is more important than demographic coverage. Verizon's announcement of a nationwide Cat1 network for IoT at $2 per month is an indication of where the operator community wants to go. But IoT vertical markets needs geographic rather than demographic coverage, which is not what its esteem networks have been designed to deliver. All of which implies that 5G has to scale to larger radius cells. It is not impossible to support large area cells in the centimetre and millimetre band. For example, there are military radio systems that achieve 60 kilometre line of sight range in e-band, but not at consumer price points. The present marketing obsession with network densification is understandable from a vendor perspective as it multiplies hardware sales. The sheer volume of 4G, its millions of base stations now deployed, provide a starting point for significant reductions in 4G and 5G hardware cost. However, dense networks come with irreducible capex and opex cost multipliers, including site costs. These costs are not impacted by industry scale. Dense networks are also not power efficient and incur significant backhaul cost and bandwidth overheads. Improving returns from existing spectral assets, such as improving returns on a per megahertz basis, is always better than taking on additional spectral risk, particularly if that risk is compounded by coexistence costs of unknown magnitude. The inevitable consequence of co-sharing KU and Ka band and E-band with the satellite and radar industry. The additional benefit of Sub-G 5G is that it can be deployed from existing cell sites, improving returns on a per-site basis. Five-band Sub-G 5G has implementation challenges, but these are not insurmountable. Given the potential mobile operator EBITDA benefits such as better returns per megahertz and per site, it would seem sensible to see this as a higher priority work item in 3GPP release 15. For developing economy low ARPU markets, the Telecommunications Standards Development Society in India has done a creditable job of highlighting the need for large-cell 5G, but the economic benefits potentially scale equally well into high ARPU markets, including vertical markets, where geographic coverage is more important than demographic coverage. Data reach rather than data rate could be, or more importantly should be, a key performance metric in 5G fixed mobile broadband. You can learn more about these topics by coming to one of our two-day multidisciplinary workshops for um, engineers, marketing, financial teams, regulators, planning, implementing, or managing 5G next-generation satellite networks. There's information on our website, rttonline.com. Or you can buy a copy of our latest book, that's 5G Spectrum and Standards, that's available from Artech House. In time, it's been a pleasure, and talk to you next month.